Welcome to the Unfiltered Podcast with me, Joe Warner, and powered by Ultimate Performance, the world's premier personal training experience that delivers maximum results in minimum time. In each episode of the Unfiltered Podcast, I interview the most respected, celebrated, and controversial experts in the fields of health, fitness, nutrition, well-being, and performance to help you find the life-changing advice you need to live smarter. Remember, you can find all of our exclusive Unfiltered documentaries, video interviews, and investigations at unfilteronline.com and the Unfiltered Extra YouTube channel. And now, on with the show. You obviously became one of the most high-profile scientists at the start of COVID, speaking about some of the decisions being made weren't, in, in your view, optimal or, or even good. What made you so sure at those very early stages of COVID? Were you purely looking at the data and, and yeah. going? I, you know, I, I didn't want to get involved. I was looking at the data. I got involved when it was only in China, and the data had actually proved that it was making sense, but I didn't understand it. I think what I really wanted, I mean, I didn't, for example, uh, I was on Twitter because I'm always an early adopter of everything, but I'd written 16 tweets before COVID. So it wasn't like I was, and I had three followers or something like that, probably both all family members. Um, but what shocked me was that fairly early on, middle of March, I actually sent, I'd been writing reports uh, for Chinese and I sent these reports generally just PDF files sent by email or WhatsApp or the Chinese reach out to people. Um, and in some ways, it was a bit like a diary because if you write a report every single day, of course, it's always wrong. It's 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 real-time science, and it's not the way science is normally done uh, because, you know, you're discovering things all the time. You're not waiting until you actually know the answer. Mm-hmm. But then in the middle of March, I turned to a learned society, a society of, computation, of computational biology, and the response was, shut up. And that shocked me. I thought, well, this is an interesting, this is a scientific problem. I, I, let's discuss it. I mean, you know, how dangerous is COVID? How does it spread? You know, how come some places are, it, there are lots and lots of questions which we still, are people differently sensitive? Uh, is there prior immunity? Um, you know, and, and the basic idea was is, you know, shut up. People will listen to you because you have an Nobel Prize and you don't know what you're talking about, keep quiet. Now, I think there were many things that needed to be asked, and I wasn't the only one. Other people got exactly that response. That response, I would say, is criminal. I mean, I think that response is at the level of ignoring the Holocaust, at the level of slavery, racism, because it's basically a a response which is extremely damaging. And as a result, uh, that's when I got involved with Twitter, because I suddenly realized that, you know, the numbers are saying one thing. So, for example, uh, very early on, around the same time, last part of March, you know, I, I, I felt that Ferguson's numbers were a factor of 10 too big. And they were having a lot of influence because he really was a... So I looked at the numbers and I said this and I had a spreadsheet that showed this. But, you know, he wasn't interested. He wouldn't answer my emails. In the end, I got to him because I knew the head of the Royal Society personally, and he basically said, you're wrong. And, you know, the fact is, is in retrospect, I was right. But now there was no reason. I mean, I was basing what was going on on a small sample. It's I mean, initially, uh, and this is also an important thing about AI, when any problem starts, you don't have big data. 
I mean, the initial part of COVID, I think I had 24 numbers, 12 days, deaths and cases in two places. Um, so, you know, actually that's six days, sorry, 24 numbers. So there's no, no data, but you have to try to get information from this. And there was information, uh, the Diamond Princess cruise ship by pure luck for humanity turned out to be an amazingly good model, a way better model than assumptions that have been in bad ways now, but this needed discussion. I think the, the whole thing about science is to have discussion. But why, so were, what, why were you shut down and why were people with similar views of you shut down almost at source before there'd even been the chance to have a conversation? Where was that pushback coming from? It was coming back from, from people who were scared. I think that the, the media had managed to scare people enormously by, this is, this is now the beginning of mid-March. Um, the images and whatever had, people, you know, for example, one thing that a scientist does when if it comes in with a number is to try to put it into perspective. And I remember when I saw the accelerating deaths in northern Italy, the first thing I did was went to Google and said, tell me about flu. Well, it wasn't, you don't talk to Google like that, you know, flu northern Italy. I thought, I, I'm very polite to chat GPT. I, <laughs> uh, and basically they said, you know, northern Italy is very special. It has the oldest population in the world way worse than Japan and other countries. There are six times more people over 85 in Japan in, in, in northern Italy than there are, say, in London. These people are very gregarious. They live well. Every year, 25,000 die from flu, and they don't take flu vaccines. So when you see that, and now you see, okay, 20,000 have died already, you put it into perspective, it doesn't seem like the end of the world. It seems like kind of what they expect, and that no one really gets upset about it. Um, so I think that's what needed always to be done. You needed to basically compare to things where you know the answer. And again, so this is just, I mean, this is, this is just good science. I think the trouble was that everyone else, okay, I think it's even a little bit uh, not so nice, because what happened in COVID, uh, I'm sure in the UK and the United States, is that uh, journalists, scientists, office workers could work from home. Delivery people, factory workers, etc., could not. So essentially, we were very happy with lockdown. I mean, as an academic, what could be nicer than lockdown? You know, you give your lectures when they come, you know, you're at home, you're working, you're doing your research, you know, and, and uh, this was the, remember, I'm talking to computational biologists who were by and large computational. So they loved lockdown and they were frightened that the unwashed masses, the unwashed masses, masses would not quarantine and would endanger them in the ivory towers. Now, this is a very nasty interpretation, but I think it's very accurate. And I sort of make it because I'm in the same category. Um, so I think that there was a, a lot of selfishness. You know, the fact remains that in spite of all the fuss about old people being the main targets of COVID, young people suffered enormously. And even, even health-wise, in terms of years of life lost, even the smaller number of younger people who uh, died from COVID were significantly more years of life lost than the older people, um, all sorts of things. So basically, I think it started out from fear, but I would say fear and self-interest. You said in 2020 um, that there is no doubt in your mind that when we come back to look on this period, the damage done by lockdown will exceed any saving of lives by a huge factor. Do you still stand by that view? 
Definitely. I mean, I think we don't, the difficulty is, is, is taking it apart. Uh, one reason you could say, it's, it's particularly clear in the United States, um, by lockdown, it's disruption of society. It's not, I mean, you know, it, it's, missed, it, it's everything that comes from the fact that hospital appointments are cancelled, people are not uh, exercising, gaining weight, okay. social interactions. Uh, okay. that's, those are all consequences of lockdown. And I think uh, undoubtedly, uh, remember those, you know, missed, missed, for example, I think in England they were saying 100 million hospital appointments being missed. They will have an effect. Either hospitals are completely useless, or that will have an effect mm-hmm. going forward. So I think that, uh, you know, the, 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 it also turns out in retrospect that the COVID was only bad in one high, well, in the high income countries, which is where you've got good data. There are about 35 of them. Uh, COVID was only bad in one Western high-income country, not the United States. The United States, COVID was four times Europe. Uh, the other bad countries are Bulgaria and Poland. So basically, USA, Bulgaria, Poland are in a category of their own. The United States has had a declining life expectancy for a long time. I don't know enough personally about Bulgaria and Poland. Bulgaria has the highest mortality, norm, the highest normal mortality in the world. So if you actually, you know, most countries have a an age-related mortality of a bit less than a percent. Mortality, Bulgaria is 1.4%. It's one of the highest. Uh, so basically, it turned out that in COVID, how well you did depended mostly on how healthy the country was beforehand. So is that why there was a, a bit of a disconnect between your initial expectations of, of U.S. deaths versus the actual number? Yeah, my, my, I was what I made a huge mistake in is not realizing this would keep on going until everyone was exhausted. It wasn't going to be. And Europe, Europe behaved in a very different way. And I, didn't, I don't think I realized that somebody who sort of travels freely between the United States, although I'm mostly in New York and California, and various countries in Europe and China, I felt that the United States and Europe are similar. So I think that probably is the reason. Also, I, I made another mistake, and I, 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 I got caught up in the political game of, of, uh, of Twitter. Uh, at the time, my, my son was actually also on Twitter, and we were sort of you know, playing games with each other. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, there's scary things about Twitter. I'm very pleased that I did it, and I'm still happy. I, I, Met some very good scientists, and I've learned a lot about other things. But I think it's it's too easy to become political. So I think one reason why I sort of doubled down on the United States being over quickly is because it would annoy my democratic friends. Now I'm not I'm not political. I'm actually democratic in many ways, but I also see a lot of good things about Republicans. I'm, I I don't I'm not a political. Okay, when I see sports, I don't care which team wins. I like sports. But it's not like I'm not, I'm not a fan, and I think political parties are like fan organizations. So I think that was part of the reason I thought about this a lot. I think that in retrospect, you know, the I mean, everyone was wrong about how long this was going to go on for. Uh, you know, the Fauci at one point said he didn't expect more than two hundred and fifty thousand American deaths, and the number. Will- Let me ask you this: then, with three years on and the power of hindsight, Dr. Levitt, what are you? What were you absolutely a hundred percent right about? And I know you don't like ranking, but what do you? What do you? Almost. I, most I think I think I was right in that an extrapolation from the Diamond Princess and from Wuhan 
allowed one to estimate the damage from COVID. The way the damage is measured is how much extra death you get compared to expected death. And that number, I think, for the entire world right now, where we have the data, averages 8%. Now, at that time, I said it would be one month of extra death. So 8% of the year is one month. Is one month. Actually, said the United States would be two months. Well, this is what I said so very early on. Now, those estimates were basically a counter to the Ferguson estimate of one year. But the fact is, is that each year of COVID has elevated the amount of death by about 8%. Um, it also turns out in most of the world, there was a recent flu pandemic. For most of the world, it's 2009, 2010, where there was more excess death than during COVID. Um, so I think those are the things that are, that's a very clear cut thing. Um, there were other things that we're still investigating about how it spreads. You know, the, the COVID grows incredibly quickly, but then also dies. And we saw this in China. Basically, they managed to infect almost all of China in four weeks. Now, there's no way that an exponential model can do that. It turns out that, that one of the things that I think I'm very happy about, it's still unconfirmed, super spreaders are really important. And basically, what we found is, if you look at how rumors spread on the internet, it's not like each person tells two people and they tell two people. It's that some influencer who has a million contacts tells everybody. So initially, with exponential growth, people, the word exponential has become associated in people's minds with very fast. Exponential means doubling after some time. So let's say you start with one and you want to get to a thousand. That is 10 doublings. Two to the power of 10 is 1,024. So if you double every week, it's going to take you 10 weeks to go from one to a thousand. You can increase a thousandfold. Now, even if you double, and typically COVID was doubling every week, even if you double every three days, that's still 50 days. But it isn't the way it works. If you have super spreaders, essentially one person, and this is, you know, some influencer gets the news. He can have a million people, so it can go from no one to a million, and then the other super spreaders will take over. So that I think is, is very, very important. It relates to the fact that societies are connected a bit like internet users. Some people have many friends and most people have few friends. Um, and this I think is important realization. And I think it's something which came out of the data. We're still trying to get a lot of things written up. There's still a lot of antagonism. I've never in my life since the 60s had as much difficulty getting papers accepted. Um, one thing that I did that, you know, if, one very good thing that came out of this scientifically is that I started to work very closely to a real epidemiologist called John Ioannidis, who's a, a Greek a Greek extraction epidemiologist at Stanford. And, you know, he is, so it's great. I mean, we, we, we've written five papers already or six papers already in the last six months or a year, and they're getting published. And, you know, he is, he knows the field. And I know the computational biology of, of the area. Um, so I, I, I think that, you know, I wish it could have been different, but I think that there was a lack of dis, of willingness to discuss. I think we could have understood prior immunity much, much better. I think we could have discuss, understood 
T cells are very important as a complementary part of the immune system. I wrote to friends who were experts in T cell research, and they said there's no way T cells can have anything to do with this. Um, T cells are important because T cells work with blood groups, and it's very likely that, say, Orientals, who have different blood groups, have different T cells. So you really can't have a distant susceptibility, which is genetic, based on a very simple issue. Um, I'd, I'd love to get into kind of the future of scientific debate and what. Let's what go ahead. Yeah. Just really, really quickly, just going back to, you know, what you got right. On the flip side, what what did you get wrong? What would you do differently if if, if you could replay it? I would be much, much less political. I'm pretty unpolitical, but my my doubling down on what was happening in the United States just was that was done to ignore people. Very early on in my first Israeli television interview, I said I would be surprised if more than 10 people died. That was insensitive and stupid and not the way you talk on television. But, you know, they, they, they'd been asking annoying questions and showing how stupid they were for a while. So I, I needed to learn to be much, much more circumspect. On the other hand, you can see how openly I'm speaking now. I'm not very good at being circumspect. So, you know. I'm interested to know whether or not part of that doubling down or, or part of that maybe playing the game in your own words did that stem from a frustration of a lack of a debate? The fact yes. That- oh, definitely. I, I was very angry. You know, there, there was, I was angry with Stanford colleagues. I was angry with other colleagues, uh, who, people in my own field. I mean, essentially a field that I invented, um, were, were behaving, ext- you know, and extremely stupidly, but I, it doesn't matter. I mean, Twitter is, Twitter is full of, you know, nastiness is almost part of the game, which is fine. It gets people's blood going. It makes you want to get back, and it's good. I, I don't think it's, you know, if I was, if I had to argue with Chechi PT all day, it would make me very uncreative. Ultimately, do you feel that social media, and specifically Twitter, because of the weight it has for politicians and, and academics and journalists, do you feel tw- Twitter overall was a was a force for good or a force yeah. for harm? Twitter was, I think, very much a force for good. I think the trouble with Twitter is that they need to be they need to be smarter with their their waiting scheme. So, for example, this is a very easy thing to do, and maybe I should write to to Elon Musk about this. Let's say you have a thousand followers, and I have a thousand followers, and obviously we, the, the currency is to try to increase your followers. Now, let's imagine we don't just take how many followers we have. We look at the followers in your thousand followers who follow each other. And then we, if, if, one of you, if one of your followers follows 10 of your followers, each of them gets a weight of one-tenth. So essentially, you, you basically say that if you follow somebody, you're related to them. So if I had a thousand followers who had no connection to each other, I would get a thousand score. And if your thousand followers were all, you were part of a group, everyone was connected to everyone else, you would get one. So you would have an incentive to diversify. I'm, I actually will write this and I, I, I thought about this a while ago and I, I, I get a lot of ideas. But that's, that a measure like that would instantly force people to diversify. Mm-hmm. And diversification is incredibly important. Um, and I was somewhat happy because I think I annoyed Republicans and Democrats more or less equally. Uh, and, you know, that's fine. I, I think that, I think it's very important. I think diversity is the secret of life. 
it, you mentioned that and you obviously mentioning the Republicans and the Democrats and uh, and tribalism as well, I think, is something that we're seeing more and more and people being more dogmatic in their views. I just want to go through a couple of tweets uh, recently, one from January 2023, uh, which he posted saying, science does not work by being right or wrong. Different ideas are raised for open and broad discussion. Discussion of COVID-19 failed, replaced as it was by tribalism, as in sports and politics. Such tribalism, strongly pushed by leading scientists, has damaged science irrecoverably. Mm-hmm. I'm, fast- I'm, not sure, I'm not sure I believe irrecoverably because nothing is irrecoverable. But That's exactly what I wanted to pick up on is, is do you believe that genuine scientific debate has been silenced forever? Has is no. the there, Forever is too long a time. I think there needs to be an effort to push back. I think what has made it more complicated now, certainly in the United States, is this, uh, this whole woke issue. Uh, you know, I got an email today to sign a petition at Stanford. Apparently, Stanford has set up an anonymous hotline where you can call in and say, this person has done something against me. They weren't sensitive enough. They, you know, that's scary. I mean, we've seen that game, you know, that, that playbook before. East Germany was particularly good at it. Um, so I think, you know, we have to be very scared, very worried. I think the good thing in America is that at least the two tribes balance each other out. Um, if you like, one of my major successes was advising DeSantis in September. He called me up. I was actually flying from Paris to China. He called me up in Paris and he asked me what he should do. You know, should he open up? And I said, you know, looking at the numbers, this is September 20, really early. And, you know, he moved in that direction. Now, I, you know, if I was a Republican, I would be very excited about this. But I do think this kind of counterbalance, on the other hand, I think Biden has done spectacularly well. I think Biden's actions in Ukraine and in China and uh, internally have been great. So I'm, I'm not party political, uh, and I hope the balances will come out. You know, I think the science... Um, but it certainly feels as though robust and, and rigorous debate is not something that anyone engage in and I, I know forever is a very strong no it, it's it's still happening you know where, where it's happening now is that the same people who wanted to say how bad COVID is are now trying to calculate the excess death the impact of COVID in a way that maximizes it and there's one easy way to maximize it and that is to ignore age so for example if you have 100 people and 10% die and I don't tell you how old they are over a year. And then I tell you, these were five-year-olds. You would, oh my God, this is the most terrible catastrophe in the world. And I say, sorry, sorry, I meant 85-year-olds. It's okay. That's natural death. So you need to look at age-banded death. But it was just recently a very big study, except by nature, on COVID deaths around the world, completely ignoring age. And that is unacceptable. I mean, it's terrible science. Now, you could say, okay, because age has been discounted, we we have a way of correcting. But they didn't even look at the places where there was age to see whether their estimate was different from the age estimate. I've been publishing now on estimates of damage done by age. And when you do that, you find basically the age profile of COVID is very similar to the age profile of natural death whether it's comorbidities or old age. 
So as a result, if you ignore age, you get very crazy numbers. But so, this has been accepted by nature as a public. We've tried very hard to write a commentary on this. Our commentary keeps on being rejected. So, so why, why are incredibly smart, well-respected, award-winning scientists ignoring the impact of excess deaths and just focusing on on total deaths and ignoring age brackets and saying that uh, the death of a 90-year-old who might have died uh, anyway is the same as the death of a nine-year-old? Uh, I don't know. I, I think, uh, okay, so I, I would say partially it's the justify the initial panic. If COVID really is just a month of extra death per year, that is not nice, but it's very small. Uh, but if the numbers are much higher, then, you know, it, it's, it's different because, uh, you know, so I, I, I think the other thing is I, I, and here again, I'm getting into hot water. Um, I definitely see a, a war of the generations. Um, I, I, around the time I got my Nobel Prize, I was actually studying, I, I like to study, although I'm, I like numbers. I don't really care where the numbers came from. And I started to study grant, grant, grant awards from the National Institute of Health, which is a big awarding agency in the United States. And to my surprise, I found that as with time, say from 1985 till now, until then, this was about 10 years ago, um, the age of the new grantees was getting older and older and older. And I didn't think people were getting, needing more and more experience. Then I discovered that what was happening was is that the committees were getting older and older because people were, I mean, the whole system had been rebooted after the Second World War, and those people were around, and, were, and I'm a baby boomer, so I'm guilty, but the baby boomers were getting older and older, and therefore the average of the committees were getting older, and therefore if you're a 60-year-old, a 40-year-old looks the same as a 20-year-old looks to a 40-year-old, and we, we judge age relative to ourselves. I'm 75 now. And if somebody's 73, they look to me like a baby. <laughs> and you know, and you, I mean, you're about the age of my grandson. You've been old, pretty one of my youngest sons. I, fortunately, I have a big family so I can take people. So I think that early on, there was this huge fear of old people. And one thing, for example, I, I think it's okay now, but before Elon Musk took over Twitter, you couldn't say, is the life of a five-year-old different from the life of an 85-year-old, as you said, a nine or a 90-year-old? Economists and medical professions have been using years of life lost for a very long time. And essentially there, if somebody dies over the age of ex expected death, you don't count it. But of course, it's a dear grandfather, it's a dear grandmother, you need to be res respectable. But, you know, at the age of 80, 75, if I wanted a new heart, if they gave me one, I would say, that's disgraceful, how can you do that? Because it should go to a younger person. I mean, life, a five-year-old needs to get there 85 years before the 95-year-old gets anything. But it wasn't like this. And now I think it's case, if you actually do normalize, the, so this is the tweet I'm about to write or going to write. If you want to get a very big picture, instead of asking for the excess death per year, let's take a country has a certain amount of life in it. And the amount of life is the number of people times the average age of life expectancy. How many lives left? So let's just say in a typical country, it might be the British population times 40, half the age expectancy. But you can actually do the calculation properly and calculate how many years of life are there. And then you can ask how many years of life were lost by COVID. 
And in the country where it was worst, which was the United States, it's one two thousandth. Let's just say one thousandth. So the total amount of life, extra life lost from COVID was one thousandth of the amount of life in the country. Okay. Uh, now, that might seem like a lot. It turns out one thousandth is a grain of rice from a serving. It's a drop of water, a small drop of water from a drink. If you made a, a pole uh, 10 meters tall and it was one millimeter less, you'd need a really accurate laser to see that. Now, you could ask, okay, well, what did all that cost? Now, we take the world and we ask, how much did the national debt of the world increase in the last three years? And it increased by something like, and, this is just, and the national debt right now is $300 trillion, a lot of money. The US national debt increased by something like 5 or $6 trillion. The world national debt probably increased by $30 trillion. So for the saving, potential, for, to avoid the loss of 1,000, we increased the debt load on our younger on the children, because what is national debt? It's borrowing against the future by 10 times. In the United States, probably by more than 10 times. That's incredible. I mean, that really is so unfair. And, you know, as a baby boomer, I'm very aware of the fact that we think we're special. We think the Rolling Stones were the greatest group ever. You know, we were born at that time. People gave us, as a young scientist in Cambridge, I was given total independence at the age of 20. No one said, no, you still have to study, you have to work. I wrote papers by myself. My first paper to Nature was so author paper that Francis Crick submitted to Nature for me, and it got it published in 17 days in 1969. And they weren't, you know, they weren't fax machines. They were, it was very, so this is the kind of thing that was done for them, and this is what we have to do. So I think we, and, and I think, Maybe one good thing is, I mean, we have this very strange situation. Old people have become more and more powerful. If you ask what fraction of um, money, of wealth, is over 65, it's probably gone up five or six times in the last 40 years. It's got up incredibly. And as a result, younger people have progressively less. On the other hand, what are we going to do about this? Demography is extremely dangerous. You know, there's been very few young people who have been born. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can now start to have, uh, and I wish Margaret Atwood would write a book about this. She's so good at her, her sort of future visions. But you could imagine a world where we just forget about young people. Uh, instead of worrying about young people supporting us, we have AI-directed robots doing all the dirty work, and we are kept alive for as long as we can afford. Essentially, that's the end of humanity. Right. Do you, I mean, do you feel that, that that is a viable, legitimate way in which we're headed? Well, why not? I mean, let's just look. Okay, so, and I, you know, I I, I I I don't believe in conspiracy theories, but one one effect of COVID has been to throw away all the money on PC tests, PCR testing, and destroyed economy that could have been a major force in climate mitigation. I mean, and again, this instead of borrowing, I, I need to look at the numbers again, and I, I write, I write the day. Instead, say instead of thirty trillion dollars, I'm just going to say thirty trillion dollars being borrowed against the future mm-hmm. for PCR and destroyed economy. We could have borrowed that for alternative energy. 
We didn't. My question is, in any pandemic response, that it's the balancing act, right, between the public mm-hmm. health concerns and the economic and, and social costs of, of lockdown, if we're using that, that catch-all term. Yeah. Why did we get the pandemic response we did then? Because the governments and the authorities would have been aware of the economic cost. They would have been modelling. I, I, I don't know. I think I, I, on the, at the one level you could say it was mainstream, it was media, it was the... Uh, social social media, the television f- broadcast from Italy and, and uh, China. Uh, maybe it was Trump in you know maybe it was Trump and Johnson in, in leading countries. I, I've often thought you know because one country got it right. Sweden was right from the beginning, absolutely right from the very first day. Let's just do nothing. Not ch- Swedish children under sixteen didn't miss a day of school. You know that that is massive, and every, but all people did was to try to dismiss the information. They kept on saying, "No, no, no, you're missing." I mean, Sweden. I have more tweets in Sweden than anything else. So, what did Sweden do differently? Did it? Did it? They ignored it. They ignored. They ignored COVID. But, but, but on, on what basis? On, on the numbers? The, the they felt they felt that it was they felt that there was herd immunity, which of course there is. We would let people get infected, and it would be okay. Now, initially, they had a lot of deaths because Sweden. There were people, there are a lot of very old people in Sweden. And I think for some reason, overall mortality in the world has been decreasing, in particularly in Sweden and in South Korea. I think these high latitude countries benefit very much from global warming. They've had much less severe winters. As a result, they've had 10 years without flu. As a result, they have an awful lot of people who would have died if they'd been flu. Uh, and they didn't. So uh, Sweden initially looked very bad, but it was just people who would have died very shortly after going. Sweden came out, it's the best country in Europe. Uh, and they did nothing. And they actually, not only did they do nothing, they said they would do nothing. Boris Johnson initially said we would do like Sweden did until the Imperial College group scared him and he changed his mind. Probably that resulted in massive extra death. And I don't just mean death from COVID. I mean, you know, uh, death from lockdown, from lost economy, and things like that. Well, why do you think that that advice was taken so seriously? You, you've mentioned media pressure. Well, I think I think you know. There were the, I don't know. I think people were already locking down. Um, Italy seemed to have made a huge mistake. Um, or was it a political it, decision? Is it simply saying? I think it was. Uh, my, my brother, who lives in England, said that he felt that. I think there were football games being played that ended up being super spreader events. Uh, pubs were still open and the public was crying out that something be done. Um, and they weren't, you know, it, it, so he said that they had no alternative, that there was no way they would but, be politically viable if they hadn't done what the public wanted. But isn't it always going to be the case that anyone elected to power is always going to choose the route of being considered careful rather than callous where's the incentive to, to well but in in the past this never happened i mean we you know the the amount of death we've had here uh, is much much less than 1957 flu uh, i'm not even talking about 1919 because the world was such a mess then you know it, it doesn't count you know, give, give me the next after a six years of war and famine and everything like that uh, 57 was bad flu uh, 2010 in in all of europe covid excess death over its three years was no worse than the three years, 2009, 10, and 11. You mentioned at the start of the call, and forgive me if, if I misspeak, but 
the, the response to COVID was up there with some of the worst crimes against humanity that we've, we've ever seen in terms of the Holocaust you mentioned and, and slavery. That, that I, I think I'm probably very extreme there. And probably it's a quotable quote. Uh, I think certainly as a scientist, you know, shutting science down when you know that science is, is, is an, is, it's a huge crime against science. Uh, these other crimes were at a level that perhaps is 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 so much worse. I mean, you, you don't make you don't make comparison to the Holocaust or to slavery, unless you want to get lots and lots of uh, tweets. So I, I I would prefer to delete that, but I do think that it was something. Also, I was completely unprepared for it. I thought people would come back and say, "Gee, this is interesting," you know. But you know, have you thought about the fact that this graph, in fact. So I had a I had a very strong pushback from a, a scientist at Caltech, somebody called Leo Pachter, who actually went out of his way to write an opinion piece and whatever. And, you know, it, it was annoying. But he was somebody, when he first saw my report, he wasn't, he wrote, but say, you know, do you notice this curve is symmetric? It shouldn't be. And this is a major finding. But he then decided that the best thing to do was shut the whole thing down. Um, and that I think is extremely dangerous. But it wasn't just him. I mean, in general, um, it's you know, fair to say you're, you're in the minority of the academic community to take the, the the line that you did. And I think you probably did go further than some people who agreed with you. But I guess my question is why why did we get the response we did? Was it bad science, corporate greed, weak leaders, criminal conspiracy? I, I, I think a perfect. I, I would hope it was a perfect storm. That it was, you know, inexperienced with social media, not very good leaders. Uh, you know, the United States, we had a leader who was provocative at all times. For example, I think if Trump had said, we have to lock down, instead he took a very lip, Trump took, Trump, Trump's views were much closer to mine. Uh, and I actually early on appeared on CNN and then I appeared on Fox and then CNN wouldn't have me again. Uh, you know, and, and I didn't understand that. But I think if Trump had been for lockdown, then all the liberal scientists would have looked at the situation much more carefully and proved that it was not a good idea and it would have been much better for the world. Um, you know, uh, that was bad luck. So I think, you know, before generalizing, I think, and, and my tweet certainly generalized and it's probably a mistake, there can be perfect storms, there can be sudden events. I, I, I sort of think that human beings individually are really smart things. And very often politically, you know, the voice of the people is often way, way smarter than, than the voice of the politicians who are trying to get their own particular issue through. Um, and I very much hope um, science will, you know, go back. Uh, but for example, I, uh, in December, I was, when, when China started to op open up its zero COVID policy, but no one knew it was going, I actually, Made a, gave a, wrote a lecture of oh, 25 slides saying exactly what I thought was going to happen, how many deaths I predicted and how long it would take to get it over with. And, you know, no one, I recorded a lecture, no one was prepared to release it. Um, and this is true, it was recorded by Chinese and they have a sensitivity. Um, but I also put my lecture slides into Twitter and there was hardly any, but basically the, the prediction was absolutely right. It, I said it would take seven weeks from beginning to end this level of people, the number of this would be between 100,000 and 800,000, which it turns out is that in China, every month, 800,000 people die, naturally. So it, it would increase by 
by some number. It was it was all very clear by parallels to Taiwan and to South Korea, but in fact, it may even have been better than I thought. Um, so you know, this could have been could have been discussed. The good thing is is that we managed to write a paper on this, and it got published and appeared in the press middle of January. So at least we're recorded. But you mentioned yeah. it's harder than, than when you're in uh, as a young scientist to get your papers published. Other academics, other Nobel laureates have called you out for stepping over the line, stay in your lane. You've got a lot of pushback, a lot of criticism. Mm. Uh, and it does sound as though it's harder to find an audience now outside of your social media channels. I guess my question is, was, was it worth it? Do you believe that what you were doing was yeah. a... Was Definitely. Perfect? One thing I should say is a, a good scientist believes that their best papers should be rejected. Because a paper, I mean, the scientific review system, the science on the one hand is driven by innovation, but it has to be very conservative not to believe crazy ideas. You can publish crazy ideas, but they, if, if a crazy idea suddenly becomes popular, that would be really, really bad. So for example, the situation could have been worse. It could have been, instead of shutting down the discussion, it should have been, we believe that we're going to be saved by Martians. So we don't need to do anything because the Martians are coming to save us. The alignment of the stars suggests that the Martians are coming. That would have, if scientists had adopted that point of view, it would have been way, way worse than just shutting down things. So being shut down is fine. It's just that when there's an issue of what I would call real-time science, real-time science gets too dominated by people like Ferguson, the committees that politicians have relied upon. Uh, you know, I was advising politicians in Israel, and they hadn't even, you know, the person running the COVID response in Israel in March hadn't heard of Sweden. When I told him, do you know that for the last three weeks, Sweden has deliberately taken a COVID doesn't matter approach? He couldn't believe it. So there's a lot, this is a hard field. There's a lot of information to do. I think, I think science needs to continue and I'm not worried about my papers being rejected. They will be accepted. And you know, a good paper is rejected. If a paper is accepted too easily, it doesn't say anything interesting. But isn't there a difference but, between good science being rejected for the right reasons and good science being silenced because it doesn't fit an overall narrative? That's that's my question. That's, the second one is much worse, especially since the second one is in real time. I mean, journals might, you know, I'm quite sure that everything I've written about COVID will be published and will be published in the good journal. You know, nowadays, whether it's Nature or some less published journal, doesn't make any difference at all because everything is on the internet. There's preprints out there. You know, you'll, you'll, you'll get your following. In fact... Typically, a tweet gets more reads than a paper ever gets, even really highly cited papers. I think my most famous paper was cited 4,000 times. Now, you know, um, my collaborator, John Ioannidis, has a paper that was cited 100,000 times, which is like the world record. So you can get very high levels of citation. Um, but I think that I sort of feel that the world faces problems. And we're a much we're a very global world. In other words, there's no problem in coming into conversations from anywhere around the world. We should be discussing these things. It wasn't just other laureates. Um, there's a recording of me talking at a there's an annual symposium for Nobel laureates at Lindau, and I was on a panel there, and I got really upset. I said, you know, why aren't we discussing this? And I think, you know, epidemiologists generally see their role is to scare the population. So for example, 
there was a big scare, I think about 10 years ago, about Ebola. Ebola was going to kill 10 million people. We have to do this and this and this. We did nothing, and nothing happened. And this is the first time that, you know, there's been flu scares, which are, re- which are relevant. Flu is a, a really scary disease because of its biology. The flu virus is a really nasty virus. And for some reason, maybe it was a whole, maybe the whole thing was a perfect storm. When I, when I think about it, an optimistic viewpoint would be that it's a perfect storm and that AI will be there in the background to stop this happening. So, for example... Sorry to jump in very, very quickly. Will the, the, the forces of good, if we can label it that, with AI, will that be able to counterbalance the, the desires of, of big pharmaceutical companies, right? Because ultimately, however sceptical you want to be, they've made an awful lot of money out of the vaccinations. They've made money out of... Not, well, the PCR testing was probably even more money. Uh, yeah. And, you know, the vaccinations, uh, I've kept out of the vaccination business. I, I think that the vaccination, I had a, another tweet that I kind of like in October 2020. I tweeted about Placivax, mm-hmm. placebo vaccine, because the vaccine had a very major placebo effect. It looks like the side effects are, I think more lives were saved by the placebo effect of the vaccine than any negative side effects. Whether the vaccine actually really worked, I think is still unknown. Okay. And it's worrying because we've never been able to make a vaccine against the respiratory virus, and maybe we still can't. Um, it would be nice to have a vaccine against respiratory viruses. You know, one thing that I thought, and I still think is very interesting, I actually consult for a company in, in uh, China that gives vaccines, influenza vaccines to pigs. Pig farms, I mean, I think they give 100 billion doses of vaccine a year. And I need to ask them whether they're, in, whether they're investing in an, in an MRA virus. Because they sh- I mean, there's no control, you know, there's no FDA, there's no medical board controls. If MRA viruses are so great, how come they weren't used for pigs? Um, we didn't have the technology, but they're very easy to make. I mean, mRNA viruses are much easier to make than, than, than protein viruses. So I don't know. I'm, I'm very open about viruses. I, th- I, I somehow hope that they were really effective. The numbers aren't really showing this, uh, but then neither of the numbers about the negative effect. There's a lot of people who on Twitter certainly believe that this virus has you know, been result- resulted in many, many deaths. Now, it may be many, but way less than the noise threshold of, of natural death. Um, you know, I, I, I think in some ways, having talked to you, now, I feel more confident that this perhaps was all a perfect storm. And I think, uh, but you know, right now I'm talking to you from Israel, and Israel is facing some very scary uh, consequences in terms of judicial reform and whatever. Uh, and again, I sort of believe that it's, I, I, I really believe in the intrinsic good and intelligence of the average human being. And I think this is something which I say sort of served me well for 75 years. On the other hand, you know, as Monty Python has said, no one expected the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> uh, Monty Python and Alice in Wonderland are two of my major sources of uh, wisdom in life. Do you feel that looking forward in, over the next five or 10 years with freedom of in- information requests and other information coming to light that maybe isn't available at the moment, that your views will be entirely vindicated and there'll be a lot of scientists and peers and colleagues coming and offering offering you an apology? No, no one offers apologies. Uh, You know, I I think 
One of my aims right now is to try to improve epidemiology as a field. They would do things right. Epidemiology is sort of a backwater, you know, and uh, even national academies don't have a lot of members who are epidemiologists. Epidemiology is well-funded because of the World Health Organization. But I think that it's an area which is of incredibly importance because, I mean, epidemiology, demography, these are the areas that are really important if we're going to monitor the world. I, I think, uh, you know, one thing that you said I think is spot on, every response needs to be a balanced response. So we really need to know how many people, if, if we stop a year of schooling, what will be the long-term effects? People who are people who are educated less generally live less. They're a greater burden on the health system. Depression, things like this. Um, in Shanghai last summer, there was a huge, uh, 40 days of temperature over 40 degrees centigrade. How, that cost lives. How many? Was it a thousand lives? Which is what, what I would guess. Was it less? One thing that happened that people didn't expect, countries like uh, South Korea, New Zealand, Taiwan, they didn't have very bad COVID, even up till now, but they had no flu because flu went away for reasons that no one understands still. This means that they actually had a negative excess death. There are more old people alive now in Taiwan, South Korea, and in New Zealand than they would have been otherwise. Your work that won the Nobel Prize in chemistry, the work you did in the 70s, right? And you must have seen so much technological change since. Yeah. Looking forward, how is AI going to answer some of the questions you've spent your career pondering? Is it going to be a massive accelerator? How do you see it fitting into the overall scientific equation? I think AI will be, you know, the other things that have had a huge influence in our lives. Um, for example, calculators. We all used to worry about calculating and then we I remember in the, I guess in the early 70s, got a programmable calculator. Um, cell phones are the greatest exposure smartphones of everybody, really powerful computers full of AI. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, two-year-old kids are pretty good at them. So I, I think that, uh, you know, I don't expect a discontinuity. I think human beings are amazingly good at adapting. Um, Obviously, when you get older, you have to make an effort. Um, going back to what you said about my earlier work, I think, um, you know, when I was probably 14 years old, this is 1961 or something like this, I first heard about a computer playing a game. Um, it was tic-tac-toe. And this had a huge influence on me because I felt that games were very different from multiplying numbers or doing mathematics. Um, and I got exposed to computers uh, pretty early on. And I think in some ways, one of the reasons why I went into uh, structural biology was that they were using very large computers. So in some ways, I think if I'd grown up today, I would have become a hacker uh, instead of a scientist. Um, and, you know, I, 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 I'm actually very proud of the fact that I can still write code and I'm good for my age, which, of course, is a great disclaimer because... People of my age are really bad at coding, so I don't have to be very good. But I, I try to keep up, um, and I just find it, you know, it's like a pianist playing the piano. I actually feel like when I'm writing code, I'm actually doing something uh, creative. Um, with things like ChatGPT, <clears throat> it, it actually, I heard about it uh, 
probably at the beginning of December, and we were with friends. My wife is an art curator, and she had to give a speech opening an exhibition of a Chinese artist in Israel. We were at the beach, and as a joke, she asked ChatGPT to write a speech uh, for an opening of an exhibition you know, by this artist. And the speeches were very good. In those days, really early on in ChatGPT, you could just say, try again, and you'd get, you'd get another version. Now you can sort of do that, but it's not so obvious. And you know, it was like amazing. Gee. And in the end, she basically gave a speech which <clears throat> accepted those two speeches, quoted a bit from them, but then said, what I really wanted to say is X. So I think uh, it, it can push you forward. I, I have made an effort to actually play with ChatGPT. So I, I try every day to ask it things. And I'm actually more and more amazed. I, I, I find it uh, extremely good for medical questions. I find it extremely good for if you're trying to get into a new area of research, mm-hmm. just to ask about it, you, you suddenly get the names of the people. You can then follow up with Google searches. And in fact, um, it reminded me of uh, what I call my Google moment. Uh, Google started at Stanford, and I was using it in 1968. Most people didn't hear about Google until about 2001. So I realized very early on that it was incredibly powerful compared to the existing search engines, which were quite bad. And I would meet people and say, look, I'm going to, you know, stop, think where you are, look around. You're going to remember this moment for the rest of your life. And they'd look at me like I'm crazy and I'd say, Google. Uh, of course, I didn't buy any shares, um, <laughs> but my students did. So, you know, they, they were very happy. Um, so I think it is, you know, ChatGPT for me, it, it's actually amazing how how mature it was when it came out. Uh, subsequently, I tried playing with, you know, Microsoft Bing. I don't find it nearly as good. I, I, you know, one thing that I actually did is to ask ChatGPT something. You know, initially when you start out, you want to ask it to do something where you think you know the answer, but people don't. And uh, I just asked her to tell me about Michael Levitt and COVID. My wife said I was incredibly narcissistic, but I asked it it 20 times and I recorded all the answers. And they were varying a lot and some were completely wrong. But in many ways, they would say much more favorable than I would have assumed from my Twitter environment. So it made me realize that, you know, a machine just sitting there presumably not knowing anything about me being, you know, just by reading it, was able to form an opinion that I thought was actually quite balanced and, and the speaker in the good place. So I do think it's going to be very, very important. I think it's going to be, um, you know, in journalism, very useful. But I do think um, we need to learn how to use it. And I, I don't think it, it's a bit like Google. A, a good Google user knows how to ask a good question. And I think a, a lot of the... Uh, onus of doing new research and getting new things is asking questions. So for example, as a joke, I asked Google, please interview Michael Levitt about COVID. And it really asked nice questions. And I didn't, I did, we didn't do an interview. We just said, give me the questions. Perhaps if I'd answered, it would have continued that way. Um, I think it's amazing. And uh, I think uh, I've actually subscribed. There's, there's a course on ChatGPT currently at Stanford and they've had various guest speakers. And, and what's interesting is there seems to be uh, what is called an emergent phenomena. And so emergent phenomena are, are an example that I always think is the most mundane, uh, goes back to liquid water. So water is H2O, you know, it's, it's a simple molecule, 
But as liquids go, water is really complicated. The fact that ice floats on water is important and all these things. But it turns out that you, there, were, there used to be lots and lots of theories about why water had all these properties, sort of like macroscopic theories. And then uh, in 1969, uh, Raman and Stillinger did a molecular dynamic simulation of water. This is about the same time that we were working on proteins. I was already in the field. And lo and behold, if you just take a bunch of water molecules with very simple properties and have them interact, you've got something that was, in some ways, the sum was more than, the total was more than the sum of the parts. And what they were saying with these language models is that if you double the size or you increase the size of the language model by tenfold, it isn't just 10 times more knowledgeable. It's able to do things that were not possible before. So I think this is really interesting. Um, you know, I, I go ahead. just seeing the latest, the public facing model of Jack, uh, chat GPT 3.5, right? Four is coming and it's going to be an existential leap forward again. Where do you, you mentioned Google, where do you, you, you rank the large language models against Google? Is it as seismic a, a development or as advanced as Google? I think it's different. I think it's different. You know, I, I, I think that, um, I, I found it very useful, uh, as I said, for looking into, into medical conditions, but Basically, um, so my own work has uh, changed a lot. I mean, when the pandemic started, I started to work on COVID and become very involved in that. Now I see um, what I call computational biology applied globally. So COVID, if you like, is a computational, it's numbers, models, analysis. So is climate change. And I'm trying to expand, you know, um, a good scientist appreciate that the numbers are trying to destroy his career and fool him. So you have to be incredibly skeptical of everything you do. People don't, the, the lay public doesn't realize just, mm. if you aren't a skeptic, if you aren't self-skeptical, I mean, no one can check you as well as you can. And if you aren't, so this has been very interesting and I got interested in demography, but I didn't really know anything about it. I've never taken a class in it. So it was interesting to ask Chap GPT, tell me about demography. And it's particularly useful if you have a conversation, so, you know, give me a general outline, then it would say, well, you know, can you tell me more? And I think with time, you learn how to coach it in the sense of pushing it into certain directions. Uh, I'm looking forward to the more advanced models, but I do think the name of the game is to play with it. I, I somehow see most of my work as playing with things. I play with myself. You know, I, I probably use a cell phone as, as well as a well, I don't text as well as a teenager, but I, 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 I'm pretty good. And I, you know, I, I'm continually getting new apps and learning stuff because that's the name of the game. And, you know, I, 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 I think technology is, is amazing. Um, and I think it's really important, particularly when you get older. Um, smartphones are really essential for older people. I would almost say that if I was you know, running the national health or whatever, I would basically say, you know, everyone who reaches the age of 65 gets a smartphone and it's taken away from them if they don't show that they're using it or something like that or whatever. Uh, because it's unbelievable. Um, I travel a lot. Um, I'm in China quite a lot. I don't speak any Chinese. But with my phone, I manage incredibly well. I can translate all things. I mean, I don't know. One thing that I didn't realize I could do, but I do now, whenever I go to a meeting, I just take a photograph of the agenda. It goes into my photographs. It gets optically carried to scanned. 
And this means I can go in at any time and just search for names. So this is amazing. You know, I mean, it's this kind of, but it didn't exist in three versions ago or so on. So I think playing with things is, is incredibly important. Um, I, I think, you know, uh, AI is going to change everything, but, you know, so did smartphones and so did the internet and many other things. Um, you know, I, I have been, I guess, very interested in AI. AI is not a new field at all. Anyone who thinks AI is a new field is. But I remember when I was doing my PhD in Cambridge in uh, 1967, 68, there was a lot of uh, very good AI coming out of Edinburgh. Edinburgh had a very powerful unit in AI, and there were big books, of course, the library. Um, they just didn't have the computer time. And if you actually ask, and this is, again, something which is this, I, I like things that are sort of uh, curiosities, things that are not obviously expected. But, you know, what made AI possible is not the supercomputers. It's not this. It's basically teenagers playing video games, pushed forward the advance of graphical processor units, and suddenly computing became a factor of 100 times faster. And remember, it's not the it's not the speed; it's the speed per pound or per dollar. I mean, you know, you can always make a big computer very fast by spending enough money on it. But suddenly, the price per per multiply went down enormously. Um, it's also very nice. I mean, what is special about AI? And it takes a while to understand it. Um, basically, these very large neural nets are able to take any function and make it into a function that's very easy to optimize. So you can put, and then, and the optimization is done in a clever way. It's not done by like, what is the best result in terms of filling previous data? In some ways it's done by, you know, what do human beings think about the answers and so on. Um, if you had to ask me, where do I think AI will be most important? I think already it's gonna, you know, I think in the short term, in fact, you can ask ChatGPT where it thinks it's gonna be most important. It, gives a good answer. Um, you know, obviously in medical things, there's so much information and doctors just can't do it. Um, is that, is that, in your opinion, is that going to be the biggest area in terms of... I, I don't, you know, saying the biggest is, I, I'm, I'm actually very much against ranking. Uh, people love to rank, but it's impossible. Uh, you know, I, there was a, a Nobel Prize given to Ken Arrow for showing that ranking is only possible in one dimension. So maybe if you said biggest, and I said, well, okay, you know, it, by numbers of users, maybe by dollars, I don't know. Um, I think it's going to be very important. I think healthcare is an area where overall the phone needs to be the portal to healthcare. And not just the fact that you call up your doctor, they say, you know, it should almost be that every morning when you open your phone and you use facial recognition, you think you're opening the phone, but the phone is actually looking at you and might say, you know, you look a bit peakish. How did you sleep last night? You know, have you had water? I mean, I think a lot of a lot of healthcare, there's an, an awful amount of a huge amount of low-hanging fruit in healthcare. Just and this is where we see the placebo effect. Just having your phone saying, you know, uh, when you were speaking on the phone yesterday, you sounded hoarse. You know, is your throat okay? You know, have you thought about, uh, and very often the remedies, we just forget. The remedies are often very, very simple. Mm -hmm. You know, you sound tense. Have you been for a walk? You know, uh, are you drinking enough water? 
I mean, these things are all very, very important. And there's no reason why phones couldn't just simply, either by analyzing you or analyzing people, uh, use AI like that. So I, I think, you know, I, that's going to be an important use. I think for me, I actually wrote a, an opinion piece very early on in the beginning of COVID, in, I think in March or beginning of April 2020, uh, that was actually commissioned by the Wall Street Journal, but when they got it, they didn't like it, so it just disappeared. But my very last line there was saying that COVID, this is very early, seems to be a good model for future disruptions. And I'm not that impressed about how we're behaving. I didn't realize it was going to go on for another two years and it was going to get worse and worse and worse. Um, but I said there, I hope that AI develops sufficiently that the next time this happens, I can say, hey, Google, Alexa, Siri, should I panic and believe the results? And I think that's another area, global risk management. People are really, really bad at knowing what's dangerous. You know, probably crossing roads is a major danger. Just neglecting yourself, getting depressed. These are really dangerous, you know, not getting cancer checkups. Um, so I think that uh, AI could be very important. I would love to see AI used in government. Uh, and again, I had an image probably more than 10 years ago when Jeopardy, uh, where, where IBM's big computer, Big Blue, played Jeopardy very well. It had already dismissed the world chess champion, but you know, Jeopardy is probably harder than playing chess, at least in terms of computers. And I thought, wouldn't it be wonderful if there was a, say, in the United States, a constitutional law where before the president did anything, he had to go to Watson, what the computer was called, and say, hey, Watson, should I invade Afghanistan? And Watson might come back and say, no, that's a terrible idea. You don't do it because of da, 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 da. And the president wouldn't have to do anything, but that re response would go into the public record maybe be hidden for the lifetime of the president, but would be there. So I do think that the level of stupid decisions made politically that have massive ramifications are, are just incredible. And and things where, you know, it, for example, I mean, ChatGPT refuses to answer, generally refuses to answer current affairs questions. Um, but, you know, Brexit. You know, is it a good idea? And again, it would be interesting. I and mean, the answer would have to be no, not just no. It would have to be, well, you know, there's this, there's this, there's this. You know, how do all these things line up? I like the way that chat GPT starts with an opening paragraph, five points in a closing paragraph. It's got a very, I mean, I think you can learn very nicely about clean, boring writing. It's sort of boring, but it's it's clean. And it's better than most students do. Um so I think it really is a whole new world. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, um, I just hope it doesn't get spoiled. I, I worry that people will be using ChatGPT for all sorts of spoiling things, like making it adopt alternative personalities and behaving stupidly. Well, you know, that's okay. I guess people get drunk. Um, I'm not particularly worried about the consequences because I actually believe that no matter how good computers are, and I'm going to just say computers because AI is just, mm -hmm. uh, and how people and computers will always be better than just computers or just people. So the, the idea is, is to work on the interface. Um, and, you know, there's an 
if you just look around at our world, uh, on the one hand, you have people doing amazing science. But on the other hand, you have a lot of stupid things going on. So we want to be able to get everything improved. Um, so I'm actually amazingly upbeat. I think that this is a, a very important discovery. I think people need to be encouraged. I think schooling needs to change. Um, for a long time, people would say to me, well, you know, how I should schooling? And I basically have given lectures where I've said, as far as I'm concerned, anything that is in Google shouldn't be taught. That means not algebra, not mathematics, not spelling, probably not writing, but still how to use these things needs to be taught. Um, everybody who doesn't need a new, you know, I mean, email and the, all of these things should be compulsory at school. L learning how to search properly should be compulsory. Those are the important things. That's what's going to get you on. And I guess the good thing is, is that you know, teenagers spend all their life on the phone, so they know how to do this stuff. I think it, it's good to deal with things that are current. Being in an ivory tower is a luxury that I don't think I can afford. And in some ways, you know, I, I, I care a lot about young people. I mean, I've said this time and time again, uh, just as a final story, when, I, when my, my eldest grandson is almost 20, and when he was like eight or nine, he said to me, would I like to live forever? And I remember very distinctly saying, look, if I live forever, then the chances are that everyone lives forever because I'm not that special. This is before the Nobel Prize. Now I would have definitely said, only Nobel laureates live forever. Anyway, <laughs> uh, don't quote me on that, although it would be a joke. Uh, and I said to him, look, if people live forever, it's the end of young people. And I would much rather not live forever and have young people in the world. And I, I firmly believe that. Um, on the other hand, if we looked forward to a, a new world where chat GPT and robots are smarter than people, maybe not as innovative, but maybe maybe just as innovative, then you know we probably don't need young people. We probably don't need people. I believe that a truly smart robot would keep people around because currently the greatest intelligence on earth is not chat GPT, it's not people, it's biology. Because biology made all life on earth. And they did it not by some clicking fingers. You know, it wasn't a creation. It was done through creating, maybe by God, an incredibly intricate system of molecular biology that led to this life emerging. And that in itself, if I was a synthetic robot that had been created by people, I would want to keep this example of this amazing random creation of life around. So this is my good view of the long term. Um, I think being optimistic is really important. I think also it's good for you. I think panic Panic destroys. Uh, you know, there was a, recently a paper in Nature that basically said that your immune system depends on your state of mind. Basically, if you're very, if you're, if you're very negative, why bother? Uh, and we've seen this people aging. Hardly anyone dies the day before Christmas. Literally, there's a, a blip in the numbers. Um, I fortunately had a mother who lived in good health until 107. Wow. And, uh, you know, and she did it by being never complaining being super optimistic about things. She went on a vacation eight weeks before she died. She went from London to the Canary Islands. 
or a week's vacation. So that's that's the way to go. And then she decided she had had enough and stopped eating. And we didn't want to take her to hospital. Um, she didn't want to go. So I think, you know, I think we have to believe in people. Do you believe that looking forward, that the the economic consequences of, of the COVID-19 lockdown will end up killing more people than COVID did? Yes. But also, but also it's lost opportunity. You, you know, we were talking before about old people and, you know, could you get a solution where you, you know, I, 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 I don't know what's going to happen in the future. I am very optimistic and I hope we will remain rational, global. You know, I'm a great believer of globalism. I myself have four nationalities and I feel good everywhere in the world. And I'm not a tribalist. I think globalism is good for everyone. Um, but I think you can see an alternative where, you know, the uh, the haves are living in Northern Europe, uh, protected by a barrier of drones who don't mean to shoot anyone who gets close, but it just happens to be their program. It's not malice, of course, it's just the way it is. And, uh, you know, not much birth. Uh, keep out, you know, and uh, people getting older and older, maybe just not going anywhere. I think the young people are incredibly important. I, I, I can't emphasize this enough because they're new, they're different. They, you know, a 40-year-old is not the new 20-year-old. The 40-year-old is double a 20-year-old. And and I and I say this with, you know, I have kids, I have grandkids, but I also know that it turns out that the secret of life, of evolution, is maximizing diversity. And this is in stark contrast to survival of the fittest. But it turns out that nature did the experiment for us. Um, basically, two systems of life on Earth, bacteria and everything else. Bacteria doesn't have sex, which means that your children are cloned copies of you. Everything else, from yeast upwards, has, has at least two parents. This means that your kids get a random mix of your genes. This is a way of getting diverse. Essentially, you throw the dice every single time, and brothers and sisters are not the same. They're only half the same. This is the maximum diversity you can get. And nature chose this because it works. I mean, bacteria didn't evolve brains. Human beings, bacteria might be successful in their little niches. But, you know, life, the secret of life was to have maximum diversity. And this is something which people need to learn. And this is a lesson that I give in a lot of my lectures, because this also means that tribalism is hobbling. If you only want, I mean, a, a good company should have board members who almost hate each other. You know, geez, um, you, you, you know the, this is why the, the Oxford dominance of British Tory politics is completely, unbelievably unacceptable. And it, you can see the results. Um, so I think that, uh, you know, diversity is incredible. I, I don't know, you know, I don't, I don't want to, I, I, I can imagine lots of dystopias. I think if you're interested in the future, a place we need to look is Japan. Uh, a fairly moderate society, very, very old people, and no immigration. Uh, South Korea and Japan are going to go through population decreases in the next 30 years. It's going to be very interesting how they handle them. I'm actually kind of confident. I think they're going to do it in a fairly sensitive, sensible way. Although there are people now advocating euthanasia, um, which I guess is also possible. Um, 
You know, on the other hand, uh, a book has been written about, written about in The Guardian, um, I need to get the book actually, about the importance of African immigrants to Europe. They were going to want children. And I was joking with my, with my kids saying, you know, it'll be possible to get a residential visa or a, a permanent visa in any country if you come in with five kids. Children are, I mean, we don't, I mean, this, we have these dual issues. Current residents don't want immigrants. Well, people listening to that in the UK right now, given Brexit and the conversations that are ongoing around immigration, will find that unfathomable. Like, they, 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 they won't be able to envisage a situation where that would ever happen. But if you tell people that the alternative is very, very miserable old ages and the stagnation of your country, in other words, when, when the population pyramid is such that half the population is over 65, firstly, they're probably not very productive. So I think robots could be, you know, if, if all the production, so there's a, there's a great poem that you may have heard of, all watched over by machines of loving grace by a, by a, a rock poet of, or a beat poet of written in 1966 or 67. And I forget his name and I feel really bad. I, this is a Google moment. But basically, there's, uh, you know, the idea is there's a world in the future. This is where AI will take care of all our needs. And we will be like, you know, in a field, in a Lyceum field, writing poetry and talking to each other and living without any of the worries of life. Um, and this, I think, is actually feasible. I mean, you know, self-driving cars are hard. It would be very easy to make them equal if we stopped having free driving cars and all cars were chained together mm-hmm. electronically so they were like trains. And then you wouldn't have to worry about the car ahead of you stopping suddenly because he'd be linked to you physically. Uh, things like this would be, would be, would be very feasible. Um, but, you know, if you think about a home robot, you know, essentially, if you're an old person, you want somebody to bring you tea, but I happen to get up. You know, gee, I forgot my medication in my room. Would you get it for me? Now, this is perfectly, you know, the the, the vacuum cleaning robot Irumba does a great job of knowing where things are in your house. And this is not, this is all feasible. And I think we're going to see it happen in Japan and in Korea. The, the wealth of the older people will fund this. But I think that... Uh, you know, I, 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 I worry about younger people. And uh, well, you sound overall positive about the future and that humanity will find a way through whatever challenge has come because that's what we've always done. But you worry about the children. What else What else are you very concerned about look, looking into your question? I'm, I'm concerned about, you know, I think equality, yeah, obviously not everyone is equal, but when equality, when inequality becomes very extreme, things start to go a bit crazy. So monopoly is not a good model for the economy because if one person wins, everyone else is crying. And, you know, you could imagine a world where everyone is traveling around in a private helicopter that is bulletproofed over the, you know, again, we've seen movies of all of these things, these dystopias uh, are, are well known. But I think that's a worry. And I think you need, I think capitalism is a powerful force but it needs regulation. And it, it's it's amazing, you know, um, we have a daughter, a stepdaughter who lives in Germany. And Germany is an amazingly socialist country. I mean, Sweden is very socialist, but Sweden is very small. But, you know, the 100 million people in Germany, so if you need uh, 
daycare, it depends on your income. Isn't that amazing? And it's, but it's it, it, the income you pay for it so that you guarantee a supply of people. Germany favors its immigration because it realizes the demographic problem. So does Sweden. Uh, it's not clear what's going to happen to a country. Now, again, we could solve all this in the short term by replacing young people by machines. This would be a very bad long-term solution because whatever happens, the country is getting, you know, if we don't have people being born, the country gets older by one year every year. And, you know, maybe we can keep old people going and keep them alive, but are they ever going to be as smart as the young people who do great things? You know, I give the example, all my Nobel work was done before I was 25. Okay, and that was because I was given independence. But the other examples are even more stark. Uh, Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, Zuckerberg, you know, uh, the Google brothers. I feel that we're no longer in a world where there is that freedom of opportunity for people in their 20s. It's, it's there, it's there but there's too it's, You're right. It's, it's not there enough, but we don't have enough of them. I mean, even if we have the same opportunities, it's a numbers game. If you have, uh, let's imagine the global population is not going to increase much, much more, which is probably a good thing. But if you have, you know, half the absolute number of younger people, now we may be able to compensate somewhat from that by, you know, people are saying that Africa will be the main source of young people for the next hundred years. So are we going to have a massive import? It would be wonderful. That's a good solution. So it's genetically diverse, but that again goes against the grain of the existing people. If if if, if you told a country, look, we need to import one percent of our population every year, uh, or, the, or at least make up, for, for, you know, I I think typically birth rates are around one percent, you know, make up for one percent young people. Unfortunately, they come with parents, so you have to even import more. Um, I don't know. These these are very I, demography is a very interesting issue. I've become more and more involved in this because most things in life are very very difficult to predict. But if you have a thousand people of a certain age today, you're pretty much sure that that same group will be alive. At least most of them will be alive in ten years' time, and they're the same people. So there's a huge coherence going on. I think the other thing are global changes. Um, you know, the temperature of the world is going to be increasing. There may be fluctuations, but the average temperature is not going to go down by two degrees suddenly, unless maybe a nuclear winter. You know, you, 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 you have to be very careful. And these allow you to make assumptions. So I tell everyone, buy property in Canada. 